Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. It's four years since programme regular Dr Dan Waters passed away at the age of 95. Dan Waters came to Hong Kong in 1954, married Vera Chan, the founder of Hong Kong's first beauty and charm school, and worked in technical education. He originated from Norfolk, on the east side of England, and was a soldier in the Second World War. On the programme, Dan talked about all sorts of subjects, bamboo scaffolding, statue square, the 1960s being one damn thing after another. But I didn't initially interview him about his years as a soldier because it happened outside Hong Kong. But I changed my mind on that. So this is what Dan Waters had to tell me about his time in North Africa, then up through Italy for the terrible Battle of Salerno. The Second Battle of El Alamein in North Africa, with the British forces and its allies under Field Marshal Montgomery and the German and Italian forces under Field Marshal Rommel, was regarded by Britain's Winston Churchill as a turning point in the war. Dan Waters was a young sapper, or Royal Engineer, with the 8th Army. Yes, I suppose this often happened. My generation, fathers were in the First World War, and he came home, and as a result I was born in 1920, so I was a war baby. And this meant that the war in Europe, when that started, I was in fact 18 years and 9 months. So I mean I was ripe for going in the war. And just about all my generation, if they were physically fit, they served. And off we went. I was a volunteer. And so that meant that I accepted the King's shilling. Uh, the King's shilling, it used to be a shilling a day for a soldier. Then uh, he would swear an oath of allegiance to the monarch and also to his country. And not, not the conscript, they didn't do this. But because I was a volunteer, I accepted the king's shilling. And your king at that time would have been King George VI. That's right, King George VI. And then off we went, and we had normally three months basic training, uh, young soldiers. And uh, off we went as boys, and after three months being sworn at by NCOs and... Uh, so non-commissioned officers. That's right, non-commissioned officers. After being sworn at and really put through the hope, uh, we came out three months later as men. And where was your training? My training was up in Yorkshire, uh, near Huddersfield. And, uh, of course, there were far too many soldiers being recruited, and they couldn't put them all in barracks. They were not sufficient. So we spent our time in converted textile mills. That's where we slept. Describe to me with your uniform and the rucksack that you would have had or the knapsack on your back, what kind of supplies did you have? I, wouldn't, I would say, generally speaking, that the Germans had better equipment than we did. But on the other hand, uh, yes, you had standard equipment. There was a small pack that you had, which you used in battle order. There was a big pack which you used for carrying things. And everyone had a kit bag, for example. That takes me back to the song in the First World War, uh, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag, in other words. Oh, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile. Use the 
terms of weapons and equipment, what 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 did you carry? We carried the. Uh, uh, everyone had a rifle if they were combat troops, and we had uh, .303 ammunition. The Americans' ammunition was slightly different to ours. My army number was uh, 1951803. I can still remember my army number. And what, what section were you a part of? I was in the Royal Engineers, uh, sappers in other words. And uh, they always used to say that the sappers were first in and last out. In other words, when we came out, we had to blow up things with explosives. And when you went in, you went in. Normally, I can remember training, for example, in uh, uh, in Tunisia, in Tunis. And two of us sappers were attached to uh, a platoon of infantry and a landing craft infantry. And we were all packed together. And I can remember many people were seasick and you were seasick over each other, you know. And you had the mothership and you had the landing craft infantry and then you were put in there and you dashed ashore like that. So tell me, after so if we go back, you had your three months training at the age of 18. And then what, where, did, where were you posted? Uh, I, we were posted to 249 Field Company. Uh, if it was a field company, of course, it meant that it was, in the, it was going to be in the front line. And I was in 249 Field Company, and we were one of the first uh, RE units to get the Bailey Bridge. It was a new, f new uh, invention. And uh, we were using Bailey Bridges, for example, in uh, Italy to get, get the soldiers over the rivers as we came along. So how does a Bailey Bridge function? Uh, the Bailey Bridge, you built it more or less by the side of the uh, river and then you had rollers and you pushed it out with a light, quite a light nose and it would go over the other side onto the rollers on the other side and then you would add the heavy section afterwards. Very successful and there was a Bailey Bridge in actual fact in Hong Kong for many, many years which was erected after the war out by the border. Now tell me about some of the soldiers that you would eventually fight with. Uh, well, uh, I said that I was posted from 249 Field Company to 221 Field Company and we were posted to make them up to strength. And there were four of us that uh, went, and the first one was Freddie Kirk, I can remember. He was a Norfolk man, the same as me. He came from Cromer. And uh, Freddie, eventually, he was killed. And then the next one was a man named Cracknell. And uh, he, after we got out to... Uh, the desert. He had his leg blown off, completely blown off. And then the third one was Tom Jones. And old Tom Jones, as, as not the singer, of course, uh, he was a Welshman, this chap, obviously. And uh, he went bomb happy. Uh, we didn't, they used to call it shell shock in the First World War. We didn't use that term. We either called it being bomb happy or shell happy or sand happy, sometimes we called it. And it meant, in other words, if you'd been under fire and you just couldn't take it anymore and a person was sobbing or something like that. And old Tom Jones, he was wheeled back to a uh, base company. He didn't come with us anymore. 
and there was me, I was the fourth. And I was really the only one of the four of us who more or less got away with it. I was wounded three times, but I was walking wounded, and I've got bits of shrapnel in my body still. So were you in Italy first before going to North Africa? How, what was the timing of it? Or oh, it's North Africa and then coming back through Italy? Uh, we sailed from uh, Liverpool, Liverpool Harbour, and we sailed at quarter past 11 on the 28th of August 1942. And we were played out to sea by the pipes of the Liverpool Irish. And they played over the seas to sky. I shall always remember it. And, of course, at that particular time, we couldn't go through the Mediterranean. It was Mare Nostrum, our sea in, in, in Italian. And so we went out, almost out to America, and we went down to uh, uh, the Cape Town, Cape Town, and we spent ten days there in Cape Town. So what happened to you after Cape Town? Uh, after Cape Town, we came up, uh, we came up to uh, Egypt, to Port Tufik, which is a place at the bottom of the Suez Canal. And we then took the train, and uh, very slow, things moved along very slow, and we used to go to the engine, and there you could get, uh, from the boiler, you could get some hot water from the boiler in the engine of the train, and then you could make tea. And then we went along to uh, further up by train, we got off, and we got off at a place which was called Telekabir. It was said at that particular time it was the biggest military camp in the world, containing the most soldiers of any, any military camp in the world. So what was it, a mass load of tents? Yes, everyone lived outside. We had tents, uh, the ablutions, uh, washing facilities, toilet facilities, were all in the open air. We had uh, bully beef. That was a common dish. And we also had Spam was another common dish. Very few vegetables. Uh, quite a lot of melon. Uh, winter melon, we had that. But there were hardly any leafy green vegetables. So what was the run-up now to El Alamein? Yes, I can remember I wasn't in the front line at El Alamein. I was behind the line and I can remember going to the Nafi. That was a, more or less an army place where you could buy a bun and you a cup of tea and that sort of thing. And I can remember coming, walking back to the camp uh, on the evening of the 22nd of October, 1942. And all of a sudden there was a hell of a noise, a, a terrific noise. And a barrage started and it went on continuously. And then, of course, immediately I recognised that Al Alamein had started. Can you describe to me what Al Alamein was? I mean, it was two big battles, weeks-long battles. Well, it was the turning point of the war. Uh, it was a terrific battle. Montgomery, of course, had been brought in because they were not satisfied with Ork and Lek, the previous general. Montgomery was a very uh, disciplined person. 
As soon as he came, he cut the beer ration, although there wasn't much beer in any case. And also, every morning, everyone from Brigadier downwards had to go for a five-mile run. He was very strict in his training. And he insisted that he would not start the battle until he had sufficient men and sufficient, tr and sufficient munitions. I want to impress on everyone that the bad times are over. They are finished. Our mandate from the Prime Minister is to destroy the Axis forces in North Africa. I have seen it, written on half a sheet of notepaper. It can be done, and it will be done, beyond any possibility of doubt. What I have done is to get over to you the atmosphere in which we will now work and fight. You must see to it that this new atmosphere permeates right down through the Eighth Army right down to the most junior private soldier. The great point to remember is that we are going to finish with this chap, Rommel, once and for all. And I can remember that barrage going in and I realised that he was very sensible. It made me wonder how the Germans and the Italians, who are on the receiving end of the barrage, how they could stand it. Of course, they were dug in. Uh, we used to dig in, we used to have slit trenches. American calls, Americans call them foxholes. What, what are slit trenches then? A slit trench, you just, uh, very often, wherever you were, if you came up, uh, you, they would say, right, dig in, and you would have, uh, a, a, a trench tool, and you would dig a trench, uh, oh, about, uh, two, three feet deep, that sort of thing, or oh, about a couple of feet wide, and you would, uh, you could get down, and it meant more or less that even if a if a uh, shell landed very close to the trench, almost blow the side in, you could get away with it because you were down. But it must have been a uh, must have been one of the greatest barrages of the war. That that uh, El Alamein barrage that went over that night. It lasted for many many hours, and then of course the troops came through. Then, of course, it was forward, going forward all the way. Churchill, he always said that Alamein was the turning point of the war, and it was. I can remember being dug in on several occasions. I can remember uh, shells coming over for the first time, and I can remember thinking to myself, this is it, you know, we're, this is really war. And I can remember uh, having the edge of the trench being blown in and I could if it if you could smell if you could smell the explosive in the shell you knew it was pretty close I, I mean I can remember for example much later uh, on the Anzio beachhead this is going up for example in into Italy and I can remember uh, before we went up we had a church service and I think it was one of the most memorable church services I have ever been to. A large number of troops, and we formed a square on three sides, like that, on three sides. And then in the middle were the priests and the clergymen, and of course commanding officers, etc., etc. And we, we, uh, we knew that we were going up onto this beachhead. And I can always remember this. Uh, it was interdominational. There were Catholics there, and uh, Church of England, Church of Scotland, etc., etc. And we sang hymns, and we realised that it was going to be tough, and we realised that many of us would go up, 
and a large number would not come back. And of course that was the case. A large number did not come back from the Anzio beachhead. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we were badly cut about. Uh, we used to support the Queen's Regiment, and they were badly cut about. And so our division, which was the 56th London Division, uh, we were sent back uh, for a rest. And in actual fact, because we were so badly cut about, they moved us across and we went by boat right the way back to the Middle East, to Palestine and there. And uh, while we were in Palestine, we heard then that the second front had been opened in France, in other words, uh, the longest day. And then after that, we came back, and we came back and joined the Eighth Army again in Italy, and we went up and we fought our way right the way up to the top of uh, Italy. And then the war finished. You say that many who would go up onto the Anzio beachhead wouldn't make it, they, they wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't survive. Um, you were 18 when the war began, you'd volunteered. Um, at that age, is there a lot of testosterone? Is there a lot of a sense that you're invincible? No, I don't think for a minute, because I can remember the first time I was wounded, we were lifting mines, uh, in uh, Tunisia and uh, it was a wadi a wadi is a dried up stream bed in other words and we worked in teams and you laid down two white tapes and everything in between those two white tapes was supposed to be uh, cleared and they worked there was a chap at the front and he had a mine detector you either used a Polish mine detector or you used an American. American mine detectors were too sensitive and we, we preferred to use Poles, Polish because with an American they would pick up every little piece of shrapnel in the ground. And anyway, what happened was one would, one would use the mine detector and if he found thought there was a mine there, he would put a marker over, sort of pieces of wire like that, and then uh, the other chap would come up behind and that chap would de-louse the mine, render it neutral in other words. And then I was, I was a bit behind and they shouted out more pins. So I got some pins and they were homemade from a piece of wire. And you stuck the pin through the top of the mine and then it could not explode. Uh, if you follow me, yeah. if you follow me, and then everything, but I, I said to them, you're sure they're clear between the, the tapes? And they said, yes. And then I walked along very gingerly, obviously, carrying these pins. And then all of a sudden there was a hell of a bang. <laughs> and to, because this particular, these particular mines were German anti-personnel mines. And the idea was that they would, there were two charges. The first charge would come up to about four feet six. And then the second charge, the main charge, would explode and 360 ball bearings would fly out in all directions. And, uh, of course, in this particular case, this, this uh, mine had exploded and there was an officer on the bridge. And I can remember as we walked back later, 
I can remember him saying, one of those little ball bearings has hit me in the chest. That killed him, I'm afraid. That killed him. And then, of course, one or two others were uh, injured. And they reckoned that these uh, anti-personnel mines could be lethal for up to 100 metres, something like that. Well, of course, why did I get away with it? Because the first, it kept, should have come up for chest height, four feet six, in other words. Well, why did we get away with it? Well, the answer was, we think that the first charge was stronger than it should have been. And up it went over our heads, then it exploded out, and we were under the charge. This is what the general conclusion was. When it first went off, I got a few pieces of the case of the anti-personnel mine in my body. But at the same time, uh, I can remember feeling, I thought, my God, what's this? And I could feel blood on both sides. I thought of my word, that's gone right through me. And I can remember thinking, really, my word, this is it. This is pearly gates. But then after a little while, I didn't see any pearly gates flashing through your mind. It's surprising what, what happens on a case like that. It flashes through your mind. I thought to myself, uh, my word, I'm still here. And then, of course, I was carted back to a uh, forward first aid post, which was in a ditch with a tarpaulin, a, a sheet over the top like that. I was carted back. And uh, I expected that they would dig these pieces out. But, of course, these people were Royal, Royal Army Medical Corps, field orderlies. They worked in the ditch like that. And they said, no, we're not going to take those out. So they're, they're in and they're still in. How many times were you wounded? Three times. like having to operate in the desert? I mean, from a day-to-day -day perspective, did you have sufficient water? No, we didn't. We used to have chuggles. Uh, a chuggle is a canvas water bag. And when you first have these issued, they were, they were flat, and you had to soak them in water, otherwise they were not waterproof. And you hung these chuggles on the front of vehicles, and by a process of evaporation, it was supposed to keep the water cool. But of course, it wasn't really cool. It was a, a little bit cooler than it would have been if it had not been put in the chuggle. Uh, one thing which was more or less a religion was making tea in the desert. We used to have Benghazi fires, as we called them. Petrol was in plim flimsy metal tin cans. Uh, they held four gallons, as far as I can remember. They held four gallons. And we used to, after they had been used for the petrol, they were supposed to be discarded. We used to cut them in half, and half would be filled with sand, and then that sand would be soaked with, with petrol. And you would light it with a match, and you would put the other half of the uh, uh, flimsy petrol can uh, with water on the top, and you would boil tea. Of course, you waited for it. You didn't do it immediately while it was still polluted with petrol, obviously. And uh, after it had been more or less cleaned, and then uh, you would make tea. In all my time in the war, it, the army seemed to think that uh, 
um, tea was a very important thing as far as British soldiers were concerned. We had plenty of tea. I don't remember being short of sugar. I don't remember being short of milk. And we would, the old saying was, when in doubt, brew up. That was the, that, <laughs> that was the saying. So, I mean, you know, if you, up the side of the road, is there time for a cup of tea? I don't drink tea now, apart from Chinese tea now and again. But in those days, you would all get round this Benghazi fire, as it was called, and you would have a jolly good chin wag. And I can remember then uh, Charlie Draper in the desert. This was in the desert. Charlie Draper. Uh, he was he, around one of these Benghazi fires on one particular occasion. He was convinced that he wasn't going to get through the war. And he let us know this. He seemed to have a premonition that he wouldn't get through the war. Uh, we used to say, come off it, Charlie, for God's sake. Don't talk like that. Uh, you know, and uh, anyway, we went over to uh, Salerno. Uh, there's a nice song about that. I can tell you about that later. But anyway, Charlie kept on about this all the time. He was not going to get through the war. He had his wallet, and in the wallet was his picture of his wife and his daughter, little daughter, and he wouldn't see them again. And sure enough, we landed at Salerno, and then we uh, uh, were under shell fire and overcame a shell with Charlie's number on it. And, of course, he took a package. It didn't kill him outright, but after he'd been in hospital, uh, there were not many hospitals, not enough hospitals. So, I mean, what we had was schools converted temporarily into hospitals. And Charlie was in hospital for two or three days. And then, of course, Charlie died. Charlie Draper died. When I'm at Remembrance Day, and I mean, we have a two-minute silence, obviously. The bugle sounds, and you have a two-minute silence. What do I think about? Well, I think about Charlie Draper. And then there was Dickie Bertles, who had his leg blown off. There was Freddie Kirk, who I mentioned was from Norfolk earlier. Uh, he was killed. I think about people like this, and I think, in spite of being three wounded three times, walking wounded, what a lucky person I really was. Because apart from uh, going back and having the odd nightmare, uh, I more or less got away with it. The most famous wartime song was, uh, I have read this and I would be inclined to agree, Lily Marlene. In actual fact, it was written, it's a German song, and it was written in 1916. And they brought it out, the Germans brought it out to the desert. Uh, the Africa Corps, for example, because that was, there was that wonderful soldier, Rommel, who was in charge of the, uh, uh, the, the, the Africa Corps. And uh, uh, you know, of course, Lily Marlene, but uh, of course we adapted the words. And when we were in Italy, we used to, let me see, we used to have, um, we landed at Salerno, a holiday with pay. Uh, Jerry sent a brass band to help us on our way. Gave us the sights and made the tea. We all sang songs, the beer was free. We are the D-Day Dodgers down in Italy. Yeah, because there are many verses, you know, there are many verses. So, uh, 
in many cases, you know, I had wonderful experiences during the war. I had some horrible experiences, but I lived through it. And uh, I was very, very lucky, and I thank God for that. Vor der Kaserne, vor dem großen Tor, steht eine Laterne und steht sie noch davor. Dort wollen wir uns wiedersehen, bei der Laterne wollen wir stehen, wie einst Lili my late friend Dr. Dan Waters there on his life as a Royal Engineer in the 8th Army during the Second World War. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.